Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a quite an interesting story, you know, a story of uh, of a company that started bootstrapping for quite a while before they ended up uh, really going into the hyper growth scaling and raising, you know, money from outside investors and so forth. But I think, you know, like uh, there's a lot of things that we can learn here because this founder has been at it for quite a bit. So I guess without further ado, Michael McDermott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So originally born and raised in Toronto. So how was life there, Mike? Um, well, we're, we're in the midst of COVID. So <laughs> you know, what a third, fourth largest city in North America, pretty much in shutdown. So uh, generally speaking, I'm very fond of life in Toronto. Big booster for the city. Very cool. Very cool. And how was, how was it there? I mean, were your parents... A entrepreneurs or I mean how how did you really get that that bug I mean was there anyone in the family uh well it's interesting not obviously is the answer but but I'll explain a little further so um my, my dad was certainly involved in the business world and he was a lawyer and, and a corporate lawyer um but you know if I could be frank growing up I really had no clue what he did <laughs> I just knew he was a lawyer he would, you know, worked long hours and, uh, you know, it was great when he was with us, but, uh, you know, lots of nights where I'd be asleep well before he got home. And then, um, and then my mom, my mom was, uh, you know, largely stay at home. I'm the fourth kid of four. But what was interesting about her was she always had these projects she was working at. And she, um, she started a number of things and they were mostly, you know, sort of charitable and volunteer things, but some of them were really interesting. Like, she built a program that she called Transitions, and she basically worked with and networked with all these large corporations to help people. You know, the hardest thing about sort of getting a leg up in the world is often getting your first job and to go to an interview and be presentable and even to have, for example, the right clothes so people wouldn't judge you by what you're wearing. And so this, this program transition was really all about that. So she would work with corporates and convince them to, you know, at least interview X number of people. And then she would get donations for, for literally clothing and do some coaching around interview skills and, and resume writing. So people just like have a shot kind of easing the ramp in and have a better shot at getting a role. And it was, anyways, a very successful program. So that's one thing she did. 
a, a couple other things along these lines. And so uh, my point of saying all this is uh, I believe she's very entrepreneurial, um, but but in perhaps some less less obvious ways. Got it. Got it. And and obviously for you, you spend, you know, most of your childhood and time there in in Toronto, but then you went to school and and this opened up, you know, the fact that there was more outside of Toronto. So what did you get out of, let's say, living in Germany, U.S. and, and other places around Canada? Well, that, that, that's good. I am certainly somebody who uh, our family never really uh, went away for vacation or anything like that growing up. That was, uh, you know, four kids and the rest of it, not not really in the cards. So, um, so yeah, so going to undergrad, I moved away. I went to Queen's University, which is not far from... Uh, from Toronto, about three hours, and a very, very good school. St- studied business there. Got to go on a, an exchange program for a year to Germany, uh, or not even a year. It was a, a summer semester, so four months. And but that was a, a really, uh, you know, impactful time and just a lot of fun. Um, uh, around, yeah, uh, and, and then uh, and then it came back, and I had a couple of passions through these years, which were, uh, uh, frankly, uh, I got into. I went and became a ski lift operator before I went to university in the interior of British Columbia. <laughs> I don't know these, uh, who, who's interested in these facts, but you can you can get into business after. <laughs> apparently, a true thing. And uh, other thing was, I got really passionate about the sport of ultimate frisbee, and I had run a couple of little businesses myself, um, organizing tournaments for like six hundred people, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, prior to uh, prior to getting into what is you know more now the the vein in my professional life in, in software and things of that nature. Of course. So obviously the, um, you know, really the business side happened right after school. So uh, here you are, you know, starting to figure out, you know, like what's going to be next, what's going to be there for you. Uh, and obviously, you know, law, you know, was not the thing, you know, like corporate law, you know, like let's say like what you were seeing your, your father, you, you actually opted for consulting, which really led into, into something unexpected. What happened? Yeah. I, I mean, first of all, let's go there for a while. So if anyone's, I don't know, I always think of like your mid to late 20s as some of the worst years of, of your life because it turns out like nobody actually knows what they're doing or very few people, but nobody's talking about that fact. And so, yeah, I, we had a next door neighbor and she'd known me since I was two and I went and paid her a visit and she was like, I don't know, 70 years old at that point. And she just, she always, you know, laughs at me now because she was like, Mike, you could not tell me what you wanted to do. But you sure had a long list of things you didn't want to do. And so we sat there in, in, in process of elimination. I, I just started doing stuff. And one of the things was I met, mentioned that, that Frisbee tournament. We, uh, we went ahead and um, uh, we went ahead and, and, uh, and built a um, uh, I started this Frisbee tournament. I had to teach myself how to build web pages. So I started a small web design shop. And as soon as I was building websites for myself, uh, you know, other people started to want them. This is around like 99, 2000. And so the caterer from my, my event business I was running for the Frisbee tournament was, was needed a website. So I started building it for others. And as soon as I started building for others, I was like, what's the point of doing this unless people show up? So I got into internet marketing to help draw traffic to sites. And then I was like, if people show up, like, what's the point if they don't take the actions you want? So I got really early into this conversion consulting stuff, which is like, Big deal for a lot of consumer websites these days. Anyways, all that progressed over a number of years. I built up my little shop. I had uh, some people working pretty regularly on contract for me. So pretty much kind of like four, three, four full-time employees, uh, you know, whether they were actually full-time or contract. And uh, and then I, I saved over an invoice and, and uh, decided this is silly. I'm running my business with Word and Excel. 
Uh, I studied business in school, but I know I do not want to use the accounting software that's available today because it is just not built for me as an owner. And so I built uh, I built a simple prototype of uh, an invoicing software, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And this actually happened from your parents' basement. So at what point did you know that that this could go into something much bigger than than just maybe like a testing thing, or that there, there could be a business here? Yeah. So I think you know pretty soon. So we really built it for ourselves, and it was actually. Um, I was living, I was living away. We ended up moving in shortly thereafter, back into my parents' basement and building the business out for a few years. But, but I was, uh, I was kind of doing freelance work. I was working, uh, you know, from my apartment and, you know, we built it for, I built it for myself. And then some of the people I worked with regularly started working on it as like a, a pastime. And we just had a lot of passion around it. And the first use case was building for ourselves, which I think is a great thing when you're starting a business. If you can be or are the customer, you know, it's a major, major leg up. Um, but, you know, it wasn't obvious today immediately that everybody would want this. And then, you know, after a few months, we just started, you know, I basically started to develop a mania that everybody needed this thing. Everywhere I looked, they needed it. And I was, you know, I was just kind of, you know, frankly, out of my mind with how excited I was about the possibilities. Um, having never worked in a big business or anything like that, I didn't understand what scale looked like or could be. Uh, so I think, you know, we started out with, I don't want to say modest, but you know, let's call it realistic ambitions. And, um, you know, I think we've conceded to meet or exceed those over the years. So what was that uh, that phase like? I mean, did you did you find that? I mean, it seems that you, you got product market fit very quickly. Is that accurate? I think I think we did for, you know, early adopters who who wanted a certain kind of, you know, usable invoicing software and then some very light and basic accounting afterwards. So, yes, I would say we we're always very close to the customer and we did a good job, uh, you know, building in this this new like cloud was basically new back then. So we were uh, we were pretty pioneering uh, with uh, with building, you know, user experiences for uh, for business owners in the cloud. And it's very interesting here when I when I hear you talk about user experiences, conversions, uh, using internet marketing. I mean, really understanding those funnels, you know, especially during the early stages when you're figuring out like what you're selling, how you're packaging, how you're positioning and how you get people in the door. I mean, it's critical. So I guess what what was your biggest learning, you know, like uh, during that time where like maybe like a big aha moment of, of how to get people faster in the door? Well, I think, I mean, I think the, the big learnings, there are a whole bunch in those days, but, you know, I, I just think, you know, going back to the customer and being close to the customer it never fails you. And so then there's a question of like, what are the many ways you can do that? And so, um, yes, I had my internet marketing background, which proved to be very helpful for, you know, focusing on low cost acquisition, like SEO and all those things to start. Um, but, but also there was a, a bit of a research discipline that, that, that sort of emerged where, I'd go out and just survey people and, and, and actually talk to them. And I think, you know, this has become like the lean startup and all, all that stuff, Eric Reese, et cetera, has become far more commonplace. Um, but, you know, that stuff wasn't really around to read about or learn on and draw from. And, and, and we kind of got there for first principles, but that stuff just never goes old. Like you just cannot spend enough time with your customers, knowing them, understanding them. Uh, and so we were, I mean, I think, I mean, it's, it's just kind of like, I don't know, uh, motherhood and apple pie, if you want to borrow a bad sort of uh, analogy, but like that stuff just, it never goes 
old and it is it is uh, it is it is it is evergreen. So cu- customer development, I think, was the big thing for that. And in that regard, like how 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 are you able to let's say or or what did you learn about asking your customer the right question so that their answers w- would guide you the right way in terms of product development? Well, uh, it's a good question because I, you know, my experience, most people do research really, really poorly and they introduce a whole bunch of bias, you know, trying to get to answers that they want to hear. And so we had the good fortune in this time, uh, we were trying to raise money from an angel group and the angel group was, you know, it's funny. It was like, we almost raised, uh, I think it was uh, 300,000 for 30% of the company back in the day. Um, and that we, we would have been happy with that. We didn't, we didn't know any better or, and uh, that was the, that was the times. Uh, but one of the things that happened from that angel group was one of the angels said, listen, like, I don't really understand your business and if it's real or not. And so we can pay a consultant to go ahead and evaluate you folks um, and look for effectively look for worms in the apple or you folks could pay for them and get some of the benefit out of it. And um, this guy's name is Bob Lord. It turns out he was the head of uh, Ernst and Young in Canada and like chair of the accountants thing. And so we found our way to a really interesting angel. And I got to say that it was such a, a magnanimous approach because we ended up working with this consultant. He just taught me a ton of stuff, like how to do structured research. Um, you know, for example, so, you know, instead of asking a question where it's like a yes, no kind of answer, you know, how do you design a question that's really open ended in nature? And, and where the, you know, the, you know, the person could go any which way and you just give them the space to go and do that. Um, that is a, a small and subtle thing, but it is, it is night and day difference in terms of what you get back from customers. So instead of asking, do you like this? Um, you know, which is like, yes, I do. Well, that, that's just not that helpful. <laughs> you know, ask, you know, uh, you know, in, you know, what would you recommend to perform this kind of a job or something like that? I don't know. Bad examples now, but you get the spirit of things. But, but you know, re- really changed the quality of the stuff we got back and, frankly, how fast we learned. Got it. And, and obviously that's for the uh, qualitative data. For the quantitative data, did you guys have, like, any systems in place uh, to really understand the user behavior and patterns? Or or, or perhaps at that point there was, there was not much available? Yeah. So what I would say there is, I think we were quantitative on the marketing customer acquisition side. um, And we were qualitative on the product development side, but we spoke to enough customers where intuitively, you know, everyone on the team would just kind of know like the priority, like we'd have 30 things everybody wanted to build. But, you know, if I went ahead and chose the three, I thought would be most impactful. Everyone would nod their heads because we just through spending all the time with the customers, intuitively knew those things to be true. Um, so that that's, I think, how we, uh, you know, uh, we, we did the, the 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 product development. Right? There wasn't really much quantitative, I guess, is the punchline. Other than like support tickets and how many people have been writing in, but even that was pretty intuitive as well. Got it. And obviously here, you know, you've been at it for quite a while, for 17 years, which is remarkable. Uh, but the first 10 years of the of the business, I mean, you were really opposed to to venture capital. What was that? Why was that the case? <laughs> I, yeah, it's, it's true. I, I like to call myself the, uh, the poster boy for the anti VC movement. <laughs> um, you know, and, and, uh, you know, like I, I was very standoffish and, um, you know, if you scratch underneath what was behind that is cause, you know, I just knew I had, I was so gapped, uh, from what, what those 
like what the whole venture game was. So I think it was two parts. One, I knew I didn't know. Um, but also, I think there were a lot of bad behaviors that were happening. If, you know, for anyone who's around in like the early to mid 2000s, and if you think about venture capital, like I think it got its nickname Vulture Capital at that time. And there was just this, this massive information arbitrage between, uh, frankly, the entrepreneurs and the investors. And you could argue there still is today, but I'll tell you, it is nothing the same. And I'll explain why in a second. But so, so I, I just knew I was so outgunned on this stuff that I just, you know, we said, you know what, I'd rather not kind of deal with the devil and just keep going and figure out a way to do that. So that was one part of it. Another part of it was I was, you know, operating out of fear, fear in the sense that I was really concerned the capital and the investors would change our culture and, you know, the way we served our customers and which customers we serve. And I'd effectively, you know, sort of lose control over what I, I think of as like the spiritual questions of the company. And uh, I was concerned about that happening and happening quickly because uh, I just I didn't have the first clue around how all this high finance stuff worked. And so I think those were, you know, the, the, the things behind my thinking. And and so we just kind of kept on going and found ways to, um, you know, to get by. We, we ended up there's some angels took an interest. So we raised fifty thousand dollars here, one hundred thousand dollars there. Uh, our business model was subscription recurring revenue. So. So that was all, um, you know, important uh, because the, the business model just consumed so much capital. And then we we just worked really hard at um, at uh, you know all the all the dollars we had. We we measured the heck out of. And I remember buying like ads on Hot Scripts, which was like a website that was like a software directory for like three four hundred dollars a month, and and measuring them down. And you know, and, and then you get to this place where, you know, I really knew. We knew back then that it cost us like four months of revenue to get a customer. We, we just had no idea if that was good or bad. Okay. So that, that's the past. And, and any like VC today, I'll be like, that is incredible. Let me pull out my checkbook. And, uh, you know, because they stick around for, you know, I don't know, like multiples and multiples and multiples of that. And so, um, so that was, those are those early days. And we just, the information wasn't there. We didn't have any benchmark. We didn't have anything. Well, Along came the internet. Information arbitrage has been, you know, really, you know, the two sides of, of entrepreneurs and venture capital has been brought back together. That's actually made it really hard to behave super badly. Um, it's also helped all the entrepreneurs raise their game. So, you know, uh, the folks who are investing have like better, stronger entrepreneurs to invest in that are more aligned with what they're trying to do. So, so I think, anyways, for all those reasons, um, you know, we didn't get into it. And, you know, over the, the next 10 years, I took the calls all the time. I would ask the questions and I, you know, started trying to understand, okay, different people have different check sizes. You know, some people are like, you know, they, they invest in, you know, just growth. Other people want profits. And I started to kind of profile and understand the various kind of investors out there and, and also start to figure out, you know, which people is this just math? And which people actually want to build something and understand working alongside people who do. And so I think that was valuable when it came time to raise capital and to know, you know, who did we really want to work with? So then in this case, what ended up being the business model of FreshBooks, especially for the people that are listening? Yeah, we didn't even really talk about. So FreshBooks, you know, by the way, so really ridiculously easy to use invoicing and accounting software in the cloud. Our, our big innovation is we're built for owners instead of accountants. So it's very intuitive, very easy to use. And, uh, you know, further to that, and part of the reason we get to keep it that way is we, we don't serve retail. We don't serve restaurants. We're built for service-based businesses. 
So folks who largely get billed and paid for their time and knowledge and expertise um, and or, um, you know, some, uh, some sub- subscription kind of stuff themselves. Anyhow, um, that's that's what we are. And, um, you know, sorry, and I've actually forgotten your question. So that's what FreshBooks is for those who don't know. What was the question again? Yeah, no. So, so I was just asking about the business model. So you answer that very well. Oh, yeah. so I guess uh, obviously now as as you were, you know, building and scaling the business in 2008, you know, there was a moment that uh, that was pretty uh, nerve wracking. You know, you were counting on some money that, you know, ended up not uh, coming through. So tell us the story. Sure. So, and I'll, I'll answer your question because I, I got away from it. Like we are a subscription recurring revenue business and we started that way from the outset. Uh, I don't think we appreciated what a good model that was at the start. Uh, but, you know, we were selling over the internet. It didn't make si- sense to do like a one-time, you know, license. Uh, but it was pretty lean for a, a long time. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll just go ahead and say like, you know, said most places, but we, we had 10 customers after two years and they're paying us like $9 and 95 cents a month each. So we we're making a hundred bucks two years into this project. <laughs> so when I say it was lean, I mean, it was lean. Uh, anyhow. So, um, uh, so, so your question was around 2008. So that was, you know, the, the hundred dollars was like 2004, uh, end of 2004. And so we, we built up and we got to, you know, a few thousand customers and, 2008, uh, we were working with uh, an angel, and uh, it was October 2008. We had all the sort of, um, you know, details of the investment sorted out, and you know, it was uh, all set to go. And then, um, it, you know, 2008 happens. I wasn't really worried. I was like, oh, it's all going to be good. This thing's going to close, et cetera, et cetera. And um, you know, he called me back, and he was like, listen, um, you know, here's you know, my deal. I'm kind of greatly affected by this whole thing. And, you know, I don't think I can, I can actually get you the capital uh, to the degree. He ended up doing some of it, but he was like, like 40% of what he was thinking before. And uh, we had basically started operating as if that capital was there and kind of banked. And I was like, holy crap. Um, and so we, we basically were staring down the barrel of, you know, are we going to go bankrupt? All these other things. And so we had to hunker down and, and um, you know, the good news is we had this recurring revenue model. We had no idea how to go ahead and forecast what a recession would do to a business like ours. And so, you know, we made some stuff up. We spent a bunch of cycles, my co-founder and I in a room like modeling. And anyways, long story short, we, we came up with something and got out of there. And it was, you know, we had to, we actually had never done this before. We had to let go of two people. We were only 26 people. So we went down to 24. And we had some people, like some salespeople were like, listen, like, you know, you can go if you want. If you stay, it's going to be basically a little more uh, commission based. And you got to figure out, you know, you'll just, we'll know what the numbers are. And we can tell you, you'll, we'll all see it coming from a mile away. If you to do something more drastic, do you want to go and stay with us? And they said, yes, we do. And so uh, long story short, uh, we made it through that. We ended up growing like 180% the next year. I mean, this is the hard thing about, uh, you know, businesses that are early stage, like, you know, pulling your growth rate down has massive implications on on your, your planning and forecasting. So it's not that you're not growing, it's it's you're not going to the same degree as the concern, which is a you know, which is a nice place to live relative to a lot of mature businesses. But uh, anyways, that was our concern. We ended up making it through. And then interestingly, um, you know, a few years later deciding, hey, like this is this is kind of boring. Maybe we should uh, raise some capital and, and take it to the next level. Got it. And obviously here you have um Pretty interesting experience that, that you can apply to, you know, to the uh, times that we're living, you know, in with with coronavirus and with all this uncertainty. I mean, you 
you obviously saw, you know, what happened with the dot-com bust. Uh, then you also went through and lived through the 2008, you know, great recession. Uh, and now you're also getting to live through through what's happening now with uh, with COVID, no? So, so I think that history repeats. So, I mean, how are you thinking about this and having that background, you know, experience of, of dealing with uncertainty? Um, well, yeah, over the years, t- tons of uncertainty, but specific to these scenarios, you know, in a roundabout kind of way, I guess I'm very grateful for having uh, seen 2008. I think it gives me a, a measure of, you know, hopefully not falsely placed confidence for how our business will behave. Um, you know, I could be very, very wrong at the end of the day. Like we're all trying to understand, like, what are the knock on implications of COVID and, you know, people being at home. Uh, and for a long period of time, like, what are the real implications of this? And as I said, like, you know, I, I would say for our business, um, you know, uh, and it's it's just, you know, I'll, I'll say uh, just incredibly good fortune, for which we're grateful. Like I said earlier, we don't really serve retail. We don't really serve restaurants. And so, you know, we're services based. Well, our segments are relatively less impacted by this or certainly not as drastically impacted. We do have customers that are for sure, and, and I'm very uh, that, that's that's very hard, and we're trying to work with them where we can. But but um, it is uh, you know we're we're relatively sort of better off, and so we have a pretty good idea of what we think the next little while will go like. What we don't know is how long people will literally be self isolating. Uh, you know, frankly, I'm based in Canada. We're pretty locked down. Um, you know, parts of the states are. I know parts of the states still are not, and. You know, oof, that's a different different conversation, and you know, probably has knock on effects that maybe we're underappreciating because of how we've behaved here. Uh, I don't know. Like New York is basically like trending up the peak cases line right now, which is so uh, you know, so unsettling um, to yeah. say the least. So yeah, so we'll see. Anyways, it, that 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 time historically helps me for sure as an entrepreneur, and I think we've got a good good outlook and a good good approach to dealing with these times. Got it, got it. So, so I guess, um, you know, like as as part of this, you know, as well, I want I wanted to ask you. I mean, how you guys have ended up, you know, like raising quite a bit. How much capital have you guys raised today? I don't know if we're fully disclosed, but like let's let's call it on the order of, uh, you know, a hundred million dollars somewhere in and around there. Okay, uh, and I guess you know it took you guys a little bit of time to get out there and and start really, you know, like going in the hyper growth financing cycle after financing cycle. Can you walk us through through what was that experience, you know, perhaps from the moment that you told yourself, oh, perhaps VC is not so bad, and then how, you know, it went over time with raising the different rounds of financing? Yeah, so I think um, a couple a couple things in there. So, yeah, we raised a little bit of angel capital, and then, um, you know, 2014 was the first time we raised uh, sort of what I call institutional capital. I raised $30 million, uh, you know, from... Uh, from a, a series of really great investors, frankly, and all that time kind of being selective about who we work with really, you know, it just, it, it's paid huge, huge dividends. So, um, so we raised around there. And then in 2017, uh, we raised around, had a bunch of outside interest, but the insiders were even more bullish. And so we worked with them again. And then, uh, you know, early last year, 2019, uh, you know, uh, JP Morgan Chase sort of joined the cap table. So, um, that is uh, that is kind of the history. So kind of gone and done inside strategic, you know, first raise, all, all these kinds of things. And yeah, I mean, I guess you know anyone who's raised capital has has stories from doing that. Uh, from uh, you know, if you're out pitching in like the valley and you've got like 
three or four pitches a day. You know, every place you go, you get a water bottle and, you know, it's like, oh, of course I'd like a water. I don't be rude and turn that down and then you know, <laughs> use the toilet a hundred times that day. Uh, yeah. So everything had to, um, to, you know, just the, the mistakes made along the way. And, um, you know, I think one of the, the, the best things I got, and I'd even learned this for myself. I got a, um, there's a, there's a guy, Steve at FT partners, who's a well-known sort of investment bank, but he distilled this yeah. really nicely. I was like, wow, I wish I'd learned this sooner. Um, it's just how you use your time in the pitch, right? So that, like fundraising is a process and, and, you know, there are many phases in it and it starts before you ever pitch anybody. And we go ahead and talk about all the parts of it. But I think one, one nugget I'd love to impart to people, which is less a story for me. Uh, I could turn it into a story. Here we go. I'll turn it into a story. I was having dinner with Steve and he told me this and I was like, oh my God, why didn't I know this before? Um, which is when you think about having an hour to pitch people, I, I remember like pitching people basically to the last, you know, 10 seconds. So there was like no time for. And if you think about if you put yourself in the, the, the shoes of somebody who's an investor, you know, first of all, you're just not that interesting. Right? I have to sit through a hundred of these in a, a week probably or whatever. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's an aside. I, I mostly held people's attention, I think, but I didn't leave any room to ask questions. And, you know, you want to leave time to ask questions because um, you want to, uh, you know, basically, you know, A, build a rapport and you know, they want to see how you respond to questions, B, understand where they're coming from. So as an entrepreneur, you got to understand that. And then that like, you know, hey, what are they really hunting in? What are their concerns about this kind of business and business model? And, you know, for a whole variety of reasons, you just want to have a lot of time for Q&A. And the other thing I didn't do is I would always pitch the historical, like looking back, Look at this is all about our culture. This is all about our product. This is about our offering. This is the historical financials, and not nearly enough time with you know. If you write a check, here's what I'm going to do with it, and why that's going to be awesome. So you know, I think you want to basically swivel the time. And I don't know if Steve broke it down, uh, but it, it's like you know, you want to spend like I don't know five to ten minutes quickly updating people on the historical, and then like you know ten to fifteen on what you're going to use the capital for, and get to a discussion as fast as you can. Uh, and that was, uh, that was a bit of a revelation for me. And I think it's, you know, for a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, like how you use the time and manage the clock is, is not obvious. That's very interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, it makes sense because uh, fundraising is all about addressing concerns. Concerns is really what separates you and the money. So the more that you talk, the more that, uh, you know, you're not a allowing, you know, the investors to ask the questions and the less time you have to address concerns. So it's all about uh, yeah. all about listening more than talking. That's why we have two ears and one mouth. So Mike, so let me ask you this: how how big are you guys today? You know, you have quite a bit of employees. Yeah, we're about uh, you know four hundred, uh, give or take, and uh, um, yeah, about twenty million people use the software since we started, and we've got paying customers in over a hundred countries. Very cool. And how how do you see your space as a whole? Where do you see it heading? Well, I think we've got, you know, it's just some remarkable um, you know, dynamics across the world with small business with needing more and more, uh, you know, technology being accessible to them from both a price and usability standpoint. And, uh, you know, it being increasingly important for small businesses to kind of have the, the operate like the, the, the I was trying trying to avoid the word leverage, but like just the, the utility and the organizational improvements that you get from using technology. So they're, they're 
they're big needers and consumers thereof. And so, yeah, I, I just see a, a lot more of that. Things moving to the cloud, more products working together. Um, you know, FreshBooks is, is a platform. We have hundreds of uh, developers who've gone ahead and built into what we do to help better serve our customers. And I think, you know, that is all just net positive for, uh, for, for you know, people who use our software. Very cool. Very cool. So, so obviously, you know, like one of the, um, one of the questions that I typically ask the, the um, founders that come on the show is, you know, I mean, you've been at it, Mike, for 17 years. Oh my God, the amount of lessons and experiences. But, but if you had, you know, this chance, Mike, of, of going back to that basement of your parents and having a, a chat with your younger self, that younger self that, that was looking at, you know, like what's, what's possible, what's next for me, what kind of business can I build? If you had that chance of going back then and, and having a chat and, and, and giving your younger self one piece of, of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, knowing what you know now? Um, so it's, it's funny. I kind of have an, I always try to come up with a better answer to this, but I mean, I'd be terrified to talk to that guy because if I tried to tell him what it was going to be like, there's no way he'd go on the journey. Right. So I think, uh, let, let, because it's just, it's too much, right? It's, it, it doesn't stop. It's all these things. Uh, but, but I was into challenge of personal growth. I, I still very much am. So I, I think the main thing would be to like, you know, try and enjoy the journey. It, it is, it is, you know, thankless, you know, soul challenging, uh, gut wrenching, nerve wracking, uh, and at times very rewarding to go ahead and, and, and build a business. And, um, you know, I think there's, there's generally more dark than light. <laughs> and so you gotta have a disposition to be able to handle that. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, but at the same time, like, you know, those light spots are pretty bright. And so it's, um, you know, I, I think it's just, you know, just try and enjoy the journey, the good and the bad and, and recognizing both are imposters, uh, and, uh, you know, just sticking with it. Very cool. Very cool. So Mike, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Yeah. If you want to get me directly, probably at Mike McDermott on Twitter. And uh, otherwise, uh, you can find us uh, at FreshBooks where you can do a free trial if you want for 30 days and check us out on the website there. You can get more information about me too. Amazing. Well, Mike, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Okay. Thanks for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.